you got a Bible, turn to 1 John's, where we're going to be this morning, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 11 and read down through verse 18 together today. And so uh, you can follow along there in your Bible, on a screen, or on the screen behind me. Uh, John says in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, is where we left off last week. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know that he laid down his life for us. Or by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, since we're a little old school this morning with just the keyboard and vocals, and by the way, if you heard the keyboard kind of change there in the songs, it's got a little mind of its own right now, and so like it just changes sounds based upon its own will. And so if you heard that this morning, that was not intentional. It just happens every once in a while. We're in the process of perhaps replacing this thing, hopefully soon, um, but it is what it is for today. But we're a little old school with the keyboard and vocals this morning. I'm go a little old school in my reference as we open this message this morning too. Um, some of you in the room remember a pop star in the 80s by the name of Tina Turner, right? Uh, and in 1984, Tina Turner released uh, what would become a hit song of hers entitled, What's Love Got to Do With It? Anybody remember that song? Uh, this is once again the participatory portion of the ser- sermon where you can raise your hand and actually engage. Um, but what's love got to do with it? I can remember speaking at my cousin's funeral, or not funeral, <laughs> It's a wedding. My cousin's wedding. My mind is discomb- It's kind of like the keyboard, right? It's just kind of going all, all kinds of places. And my cousin's wedding um, a number of years ago and, and kind of quoting that song. Um, because love and, and marriage uh, has everything to do with it. And love in the context of a local church as well has everything to do with it. That's the answer. You've, what's love got to do with it? And John's mind, particularly when it comes to assurance in our lives, is everything. Love has everything to do with it. And here's why. We, we, we know the reality of, be, of having, uh, some of us have experienced the reality of having our emotions stirred, but not, not really having our affections changed. Right, because affections are centered around priorities in your life, how you order your life, how you, how you structure your life. And you can have your emotions stirred by something, but never really have your affections changed case in point, if you've seen the SPCA commercials, right, they start running them every, right, from now through the end of the year, right, and then Sarah McLaughlin's on there singing in the arms of the angels, right, playing a little keyboard, speaking about all the puppies and kitties that need to be adopted into good loving homes and how they need your support and raising funds for that, and they show the, the dogs with the saddest eyes, right, they're just locked up in these cages and they're just looking at you as if, if somebody doesn't adopt me, I think I'm just going to roll over and put my feet up and die right here in this cage right and they're all these animals just look so sad right and you see those commercials and maybe if you're like me sometimes my heart hardens towards those things and I just change the channel 
But if you keep watching the commercial all the way through to the end and they make their sales pitch, right? Rarely do people pick up the phone probably and call and make a donation. Or they don't go, you know what? We need to rush down to the shelter right now and adopt as many cats and dogs as we can possibly bring home in our vehicle and return home with them, right? Because you might be saddened by the state of these animals. Your emotions get stirred whenever you watch commercials like that, but your affections are not changed because there's no difference in your actions. You with me? It's one thing to have your, effect, your emotions stirred. It's another thing to have your affections changed. Where you begin to walk with new priorities. You begin to order your life in a new way. And so when John says, listen, when Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? Like John says, everything has everything to do with assurance. It has everything to do with being a child of God. And here's why, because in this text that we just read together this morning, John says this, that the evidence of life is love. You with me? The evidence of life is love. That's what John says in verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John says. He says, the way that you know that you've crossed the line, the way that you know that you've really actually come to faith in Jesus, the way that you know that, to use John's language, that you've been born of God, that his seed is abiding within you, the evidence that you, one of the pieces of evidence that you look for is love, right? And, and love is not just having your emotions stirred, but your affections changed to where your priorities are now reordered, Right? There's a new order in the way that you live. And in particular, there's a new order in the way that you live when it comes to loving the church. Because that's who John's speaking of here when he says that you, the way you know you've passed from death to life is that you love the brothers. Or back up in verse 11 when he says, you, you, you've, you know, you've heard it said that we, we should love one another. Right? There's a particular kind of love. Yes, there's a general love that Christians have for all peoples in all places. Right? But there's a particular kind of love that Christians are to have for those with whom they are brothers and sisters. With God as their Father. That they're bound to God in covenant relationship with Him and they're bound to God and bound to their brothers and sisters in covenant relationship with them. Right? And so in the same way that I can look out on our church and say... Listen, every woman who's in this room this morning, right? I love you. I love you as your pastor. I love you as a shepherd in your life. I love you as one who stands before you and teaches God's word. I love you as one who wants to care for your family spiritually. But whenever I I tell my wife in the morning before I leave for work or she leaves for work and I give her a kiss on the cheek and I say, I love you, I better mean something different when I say that to her than whenever I say that to all of you in the room this morning. Because we're in covenant relationship with each other as husband and wife. There's a particular kind of love that I have for her. Right? And that's what John is saying about the church. While you love all peoples and all places, there's a particular love that you have for your family. For your brother, for your sister, for your spiritual mom, for your spiritual dad. For those who have the same Father, God, and are bound together in covenant union and, and, and are related not by the blood necessarily that flows through their veins, but by the blood that was shed for them on the cross. And the kind of love John has in mind here is not just, see, some of us when we go, oh, well, I'm a very 
I'm a very compassionate person. My, I cry real easily, right? I'm very emo- so I must be very loving. That's not what John's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about things like if you have a Rolodex, a mental Rolodex, where you can kind of peel back some of the layers and think, well, remember back in 2001 when I, when I did that thing for those people? Or in 2003 when I did that thing for that couple or that family or that kid? Man, that would, yes, of course I'm a loving person. But what John is, the, the verb that he's using here when he talks about love is a present tense verb. You know what that means? It means this. It means that it's a continual, a continual priority, a continual ordering, a continual affection that leads you to continually move towards the needs of other people. It pushes you out of having the universe revolve around yourself and, if the, and, and, and centers your universe revolving around God and His people and you're moving towards them continually, perpetually, over and over and over and over and over again. It's that kind of love that John's talking about. And he says, you, we, we are to lo- the reason this is evidence that you've passed from death to life, that evidence is love, is because this, because the part of God's nature and His character is that He is love. Listen to what John says further down in chapter 4, where we'll get in a couple of weeks in chapter 4. In verse 16, he says, so we know we have, co- so we know, no, that's not what he says. So we have come to know. He uses no so many times in so many ways. So we have, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Then down in verses 20 to 21 of chapter 4, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Because part of God's character is that he's a loving God. He's a God who's filled with love. Right? He's not just filled with emotion, but filled with love, with affection for His people. And so His children, if they're, if they're born of God, if God is their Father, then they should be filled with this kind of love as well. So that love, in the sense in which we ought to love one another, is the, sense in which, the same sense in which the orange is sweet, right? Because that's what it is. Or that ice is cold, right? Because that's what it is is or that a rose smells fragrantly because that's what it is or a fire ought to be hot or water ought to be wet or a lemon ought to be sour all these things are those things by nature and God if we're born of him and his seed has come to abide within us the Holy Spirit's come to take up residence within us this very love that the father has for the son and the son has for the father is now living within us then we ought to love Because God has given us of himself. How can we not? That's John's argument in chapter 4. So the evidence of life is love. Now as we think about what it means to love the church, to love the church, we're going to press into this more practically here in a moment, but I want to start by saying what it doesn't look like to love the church. Okay? Okay? Because listen, it is popular in our day and age. Like any of you who are on social media, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Instagram, 
I don't know what else is out there. I'm sure there's 17 new ones since the last time I created an account. But if you're on any form of social media and you look up hashtag church or hashtag Christians, one of the most pervasive threads that you're going to find there are going to be people who are bashing the church. And these would be self-professed Christians, right? Self-professed believers who are perhaps even members of churches who have nothing but negative things to say about the church. Now listen, it's one thing to observe where there are failures and where there are flaws and want to put your hand to the plow to work toward correcting those things and seeing a church become healthy and vibrant and flourishing. It's another thing to sit in the basement with a computer and just bash Jesus' bride Right? Because that's how Jesus speaks of the church, as his bride, as his family. It's one thing to sit in a study and on, with the keystrokes of a computer, trash talk the church. It's another thing to actually be involved in one, serve her, love her, and lay your life down for her. And so this is a timely word in our day. Because there are many who would rather bash the church than love the church. And yet Jesus, John says here, listen, there, in chapter 4 and in chapter 3 as well, the implication is this, is that you, you do not love the Father whom you have not seen, John says, if you don't love the church that you have seen, your brother that you have seen, the people that you have seen who are around you. Listen, there's another song I'd bring your attention to. It's written by a guy named Derek Webb before he kind of fell off of a cliff a little bit uh, morally and theologically, but he had some good music back in the day. And so uh, in the early 2000s, he wrote a song called The Church. And listen to what he says. He says, I've come, he's speaking of Jesus, his love for his people, his love for the church. Listen to what he says. It's kind of speaking in that third person of Jesus singing this over his bride. I have come with one purpose to capture for myself a bride. By my life, she is lovely. By my death, she's justified. By my perfect life, she is pure and radiant before God. And by my death, her sins have been atoned for and she is right in his sight. I've always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water, I will wash her and by my word alone. So when you hear the sound of the water, of baptism, of people going down and coming up, you will know that you're not alone, that you're part of a family that God is making. And when you taste of my flesh and my blood, when you come to the Lord's table and you take of the bread and the cup, you will know that you're not alone, but you're in this family, but united to a father with brothers and sisters. He says, because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. And I think that he's spot on. Because how can you love a God that you have not seen if you do not love your brother, your sister, your family, the church that you have seen? It's not possible, John says. You cannot love God without loving his people. That's why the evidence of life, one of the evidences of life is love and a particular love for the church. So what's the enemy of that kind of love? Right, what's the enemy of it? The enemy of, at least one enemy of love is lust. You know that? Some of us recognize that physically and relationally, but I want you to know that's the same thing is true when it comes to 
being a part of a local fellowship and family of faith. The enemy of love is lust. See, lust is an infatuation with the ideal, while love is an affection for the real. You with me? Love is, lust is an infatuation with the ideal, while love is an affection for the real. Right, you ask any individual who has struggled with an addiction to pornography and they will tell you they were infatuated, captivated by the ideal. And yet it is one thing to be infatuated with the ideal, which by the way also diminishes your capacity to really love. Right, to really love the real person who's in front of you. It's one thing to be infatuated with a, a body that has been augmented in a limitless number of ways versus loving the real person who is standing in front of you. There's a difference between those two things. Right? And the same is true with regards to the church. The same is true. Listen, when you, infatuation with the ideal, there are many people in, in modern America, in our particular culture, who are searching for the ideal church. Let me let you in on a clue. You're not going to find it. It doesn't exist. It is a figment of your imagination. There might be all kinds of augmentation in a variety of places, but the ideal church does not exist. Not this side of heaven anyway. And so in every church that you walk through their doors, when you look at the church, you'll still see warts, you'll still see zits, you'll still see moles, you'll still see imbalances in the, in, in the body, you'll still see disfigured, a disfigured mess. Because there's some churches might be missing arms, or they're missing legs, or they're missing eyes, or they're missing ears. And some of them have those crazy uncles who are sitting on the front porch just cleaning their guns with three teeth in their mouth, just smiling at you and kind of giggling when you walk through the door, right? You got all kinds of people in churches and all kinds of messes in churches because the reality is there is no ideal there is a fantasy a figment of our imaginations and when you look at any church you're always going to see it long enough hard enough you're going to see the imperfections and the imbalances but when you look at the church listen you see a beauty in all the brokenness if you really love the church you see a beauty in, you see brokenness but you see beauty in that brokenness because you see that you're kin and bound to those individuals by the blood of Christ. You see other men and women for whom Jesus died. And so you're not just searching for the ideal, but you're loving the real. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor in World War II under the Nazi regime of an underground church and seminary. Listen to what he says about the church. He says about Christian community, he says, it's not an ideal which we must realize but a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. It's not an ideal which we've got to work really hard to realize and to make it come into to fruition, right? But it's a reality that God made that you and I get to enjoy. And we enjoy it in the high times, we enjoy it in the low times, on the mountaintops and in the valleys. It's just like marriage, when you're committed to a person or to a people, right? You, you celebrate together and you grieve together, right? Because it's, it's not always celebration. 
If your marriage is that way, then you've been married for like a day. <laughs> right? A day. It's not always celebration. There are times and seasons of grief. There's times of conflict in which there are people who are not just getting along with each other because they have differences of opinions. So we're not working for the ideal church, but we're participating in this real one that God's placed us in that sits before our eyes. And we're ordering the priorities of our life around loving these people in particular that God has given to us and us to them. See, listen, it's, uh, let me say this. It's also, it's not lust also, this church lust also leads us to begin to identify with people, not on the basis of our identity, but on our interests. And this is huge. This is huge. Right, notice what John says again in verse 11. We should love one another. And then he says in verse 14, we love the brothers. Listen, what he's talking about there is not common interests that we have with other individuals, but common identity that we share with them. That's what John's talking about. For us, oftentimes we order our lives around common interests. I like to hunt. I like to fish. I like to watch NASCAR. I like to watch football. I like to watch baseball. I like to shop. I like to go to little cute tea rooms and boutiques. I like to right, go to the hill country. Right? We, we, we take these vacations. We order our lives and our relationships oftentimes around common interests. But the Bible says nothing about that. Listen, it's not wrong. It is not wrong for me to share an interest with somebody. It's not wrong for you to share an interest with somebody. What is wrong is to order your life around just, just those people that you share common interests with. Whenever God has provided for us a church with whom you share common identity. Identity. Or we order our lives only around people who are our age, with our ages of kids. When God has given us mothers and fathers in the church and brothers and sisters in the church and sons and daughters in the church. Do we love all of them? Do we move towards them? Do we want relationships with them? Are we, are we, are we, are we just comfortable in our own little silos and pockets of people who share interests, the same interests that we do? John says nothing, the Bible says nothing about interest, but a lot about identity. I, I dream of a church. Listen, I dream of a church where there are older, seasoned women who are willing to dig down into the lives of younger women and mentor them. I dream of a church where there are older seasoned men who would dig down into the lives of younger men and mentor them. And where younger men and women would want mentorship from their, their spiritual mothers and fathers in the church. Listen, I know that language of spiritual mothers and fathers has been hijacked in some traditions. But listen, it is a good thing to have spiritual moms, spiritual dads who can disciple you, who can invest in your life, who can raise you up. Young, seasoned moms with young moms, seasoned dads with young dads. That is a beautiful thing. That is loving the brothers. That is loving the sisters. That is loving the sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. What I wouldn't give to see that kind of reality birthed at Redeemer. 
because we're not lusting after the ideal church, but we're enjoying the real one. I, I, some of you are like, hmm. But I gotta, move, I gotta move, I know I do. I could talk about much more about this, but we gotta move on. I wanna move on by just, as we, as we close, I say that somewhat lightly. But as we close, you ask, how do we show this kind of love? How do we reorder our priorities? How do, we, how do we be people who not just have our emotions stirred, but really our affections changed? How do you know if that's happened? And how do we walk in that? Let me give you two ways. First of all, we have to love visibly and actively. Visibly and actively. Look at what John says in 1 John 3.18. He says, little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, that word truth there, it literally means this in the Greek. It means that which is not concealed, a fact or a condition that can be seen or expressed as it really is. In other words, right, love is not just something that we say, but it is something that we show. Love is shown more than it is said. And in fact, if our showing does not match up with our saying, then there is a degree of hypocrisy that exists there where we're saying, we're projecting one image, but living another. We're projecting one life, but living another life. John says that love, you're to love visibly to where it can be seen where it can be seen readily by others. That you love in truth. Where the people can see that you love them. They're shown that you love them. It shows when you reorder your priorities around loving your brothers and sisters. And listen, one of the ways that we do that is by being present in their lives. In the midst of their hardships. In ways that correspond to the real need for, for them. Right? Listen, I've, I've used this illustration before. That if you, if, if, if you uh, come to know a, a, a young teenage girl who made poor decisions, who sinned sexually and became pregnant and outside the, the confines of the marital relationship, and you move into her life, what she needs right, is not an iPad. Do you know that? <laughs> she doesn't need a car. She doesn't need a computer. Right? She doesn't need, she might need some maternity clothes. She doesn't need earrings and, and dresses. What she needs is someone who's willing to sit with her and cry with her and pray with her and not give up on her and love her and be present in her life throughout the duration of that pregnancy, whether she keeps that baby or she gives it up for adoption and who follows up with her afterwards and moves towards her, takes her to coffee, takes her to lunch, listens to her, counsels her. Like that's what she needs. Right? That's love that corresponds to the real need in her life. With me? Like what Stephen Marshall needed was somebody to show up and caulk windows and to cut firewood and to maybe do a little bit of, bit of, uh, of chicken coop repairing, right? Whatever those, those, those were the needs at their property, right? 
What they didn't need was for you to come out there, was us to come out there and dig a moat around their property. <laughs> right? That's not what they needed. They may want that. That's not what they needed. Right? And so loving in truth is something that is visible and seen and it corresponds to a real need in a person's life. And oftentimes the only way that we know that is by being present with them. By being present with them. And then as, as, as we are present with them and those things come to be recognized that there's a need there, then we actively love. Actively. Listen, I've told this story before about my daughter whenever she was born. Many of you know her story. She was born with a birth defect. It's, so far she's had, I've lost track. Um, seven, is it seven? Eight surgeries in seven years. And so, um, so she had her eighth surgery back in August. But whenever she was, the, the, when she was born, she was born with cranial synostosis. Her skull bones were prematurely fused together in utero. And so the, at three months of age, the doctors, a plastic surgeon, neurosurgeon, maxillofacial surgeon, all consulted together and they worked on her. The neurosurgeon opened her up. The plastic surgeon put her back together. The maxillofacial surgeon was there to consult. They did that again at 18 months of age. They opened up the front side at three months, the back side at 18 months. And so it was a heavy financial burden for us as a family, as you can imagine, with all those specialists, hospital bills, everything else that we had going on. At the time, I was serving in another church, and I was teaching a life group on a Saturday night for that church. And they came to us aware of the position that we were in. My wife had just recently lost her job um, at, uh, or, or because we, she'd had a baby and she'd gone back to work. And they said, hey, we don't need you anymore. She, wasn't, she was PRN in the medical field, which means when you're needed, you work. When we don't need you, you don't work. And so there was no guarantee that her hours were going to be there. So she went back and had no job. And so that group moved, of about 40 adults moved towards us and said, can we do something to bless your family financially? We want to do this fundraiser. And so we said, yes. And so they, they barbecued brisket and they baked desserts and they put together these plate meals and served them after church. And people who came by donated more, some more. And at the end of the day, right, as I, as I, Karen can attest, whenever they walked up and said and announced the amount that they had raised, I just, I didn't, I couldn't speak because I was just so overwhelmed with emotion for the way they had actively stepped into our need and done something visibly to meet it. That is love, church. That is love. When John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk. Don't just say that you love someone, but in deed and in truth. That corresponds to a real need that is visible and demonstrable and that is actively engaging that. That's love, John says. So love visibly and actively as you love your brothers and sisters, as you love your mothers and fathers, as you love your sons and daughters. But John not only says love visibly and actively, but listen, he also says this, and this is, I'll close with this. He says love selflessly and sacrificially. Selflessly and sacrificially. If you look in the text again, John tells us, before he tells us what love is, he says what it isn't. He says, don't be like Cain. 
he uses the illustration of Cain and Abel and draws us back to the Old Testament. In verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If you go back into Genesis, you see that Cain raised up and slay his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. If you fast forward to the book of Hebrews, what you discover is that Abel's was offered in faith and Cain's was offered from a heart that was disconnected from trust and belief and reliance upon God. Not in faith. And so out of jealousy and envy, Cain rose up, slays his brother. Did not love his brother, but actually murders his brother. And so in verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, brother, that the world, the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Once again, John uses a present tense verb to describe an ongoing hatred that just festers and simmers within our souls. So I do not think that John's saying that anybody who is on death row in some state penitentiary because they murdered someone is outside of God's redemptive power. It's not what he's saying. If they come to repentance, that even the thief on the cross, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? So that's not what he's saying. He's saying this. If there is continual, ongoing hatred in your heart and a bitterness and resentment and anger that simmers below the surface and sometimes boils up into a desire for revenge, if that is a perpetual, ongoing reality in your life, he says you're a murderer. Right? Even as you look back into the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Right? You shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who harbors hatred in his heart toward his brother. Or you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but Jesus says, you, any of you who look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Because Jesus says sin goes beyond the surface down into the heart. It has roots before it ever has fruit. And what he's saying here in John is this. If there is an ongoing perpetual hatred towards your brother, then that is evidence that you have not been born of God. Because you're not loving your brother the same way that Cain didn't love his brother, but slayed him. On the flip side, John says in verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, If anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, and he shuts his heart off towards him, he says, how can the love of God abide in such a one? And then he says, dear children, let us not love with word or talk, but with actions and in truth. See, John says, don't be like Cain, but order your life. Follow the example and the pattern that Jesus set of laying his life down for us. This is love. It's sacrificial. It is selfless. It's not looking at the other saying, what am I going to get out of this? It's looking at the other and saying, what can I give towards them? 
What can, I, what, what can I sacrifice for their welfare, for their well-being? What can I give, not what can I get? That's exactly how Jesus lays his life down for the sake of every one of God's children. And he says, don't follow the pattern of Cain, but follow the pattern that Christ has set for us. It was an exhaustible, overwhelming, incredible, unfathomable, you can't find the depths of it, his steadfast love expressed to you through the laying, stretching out of his arms and the laying down of his life that he gave himself for you and so give yourself for others, John says. Because if you've been born of him, it's who you are now. So don't claim love for this God that you cannot see without a love toward those that you can. And notice he gets real particular, doesn't he, in the text? He says, if you have the world's goods. What's he talking about? He's talking about your debit card. He's talking about your bank account. He's talking about your possessions. He says, if you have the world's goods and you see a brother in need, he says, leverage. Leverage your excess towards their lack. That's what he says. Leverage your excess towards their lack. And your excess, listen, we live in such an upside down society. Your excess, my excess, does not come at the end of the month when all of our bills are paid and all of our discretionary spending is done. But it comes at the end of the month when all of our bills are paid before our discretionary spending is done. It is sacrificial at times to say no to this so I can say yes to this need in a person's life. So love visibly and actively. Love selflessly and sacrificially. Because God is your Father. Sent His Son to be visible and active, selfless and sacrificial. And if you're born of Him, then this kind of, you find this kind of love growing in your soul. And you don't always do it perfectly. But you find yourself doing it more and more and more progressively. Is that evidence there? That's what John wants us to consider this morning. Let's pray together. Father, today, we come with hearts that are grateful for your compassion and kindness to us in Christ. We come with hearts that are full of of your overwhelming, unfathomable, we, don't, we can't find the depths of it, your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love for us. That showed itself through the giving of your Son, who actively lived in our place and then selflessly and sacrificially gave his life for us. Father, may we be a people who test who test the validity of our confession to know and love you. 
by the evidence of this kind of love in our life, that we order our life this way. To be loving examples and patterns of the very love that you had for us. So Father, as we sing this morning, help us to rejoice in that love that you had for us. And may that rejoicing overflow into our lives where we might visibly, actively, selflessly, and sacrificially move from lust over the ideal church to loving the real one that you've placed in front of us. And in so doing, God, might there be great assurance that would feed and fuel more and more love for you and for our brothers. We pray it in Jesus' name.